Well, last week we actually finished Revelations. And this week, very appropriately, we start the book of Daniel. Well, it's appropriate for a couple different reasons. First, it ties really nicely into Revelations because Revelations told us or talked about being an overcomer and what an overcomer is all about, that we're supposed to overcome these fiery trials. And we learned in Revelations that these fiery trials are good. They're not to be avoided. We want them. We, we, want, we should enjoy having them in our lives as difficult as they are. And they come in a couple different forms, right? We get these fiery trials through external circumstances, and we have them internally where we have to overcome the flesh. So as we face our fiery trials, we're charged to be overcomers. We're charged to be an example of overcoming and living life the way God intended us to live it, to be an example for all those around us, to be that beacon, that light, that shining light for others and guide them to Christianity as well. Well, we can only do this through faith and commitment. So today, as we start Daniel, we get to see a great opportunity to see a great example of all of this, right? Daniel did exactly what Revelations told us we should be doing in our own lives. He overcame fiery trials that were imposed on him from external circumstances and within himself, undoubtedly. He's a great example of how to demonstrate to others how to do life right, how to overcome fear, stay committed, and live life through faith. So when you look at Daniel and you think of this just as a book of faith and overcoming, faith and commitment is the two things we're really going to dig into today, faith and commitment. So today we're going to spend most of the time, though, just setting the stage for the book of Daniel. We're going to look at where we're at in history and what the political landscape looks like to get a better sense of what Daniel is actually going through. So let's take a look at Daniel. Daniel 1, verses 1 and 2. Daniel 1, 1 starts with, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. So where is all this taking place? Well, this is about 605 B.C. So let's look at where we are biblically. And we think about how the Bible is structured. 2000 B.C. and before, we're looking at the book of Genesis, right? Uh, 1500 to 2000, where the time of Moses was Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Then from 1000 to 1500, we've got the monarchic period with uh, Kings, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Chronicles, all of those. And then a couple key dates in the history of Israel after that is 722, which is the Assyrian captivity. And there's several books that center around that. And here we are in 605 to 586 time period where... Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, and we're going into the Babylonian captivity. So we have the southern kingdom of Judah, and it's besieged by the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And there's a bunch of captives and articles taken from the temple, taken back to Babylon. All of this is done as part of God's plan, though. This was all foretold by the prophets, specifically by Jeremiah. So we're going to look really closely at Jeremiah today and how this was all prophesied to come to pass. So let's look at Jeremiah 7. Jeremiah 7, 1 says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim that there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all of you Judah who enter into the gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, 
If you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, or walk after other gods to your hurt, then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say... We are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which called by my name, became a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear, and I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place, which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren, the whole posterity of Ephraim. So God's speaking to Jeremiah, and he's telling him to tell the people that they're sinning. I mean, they know it, but he's telling them they're worshiping other gods, and then coming to the temple to worship him too. They're murdering, and then coming to worship him. They're being false to God and false to themselves. God's telling them that if they don't straighten up, that he'll do to them what he has done to Shiloh. So Shiloh was the main center of Israelite worship prior to the monarchic period. Today it's located within the West Bank. Uh, people who would travel from all over Israel to worship there because that is where the tent or the tabernacle was set up with the Ark of the Covenant. We have this very important location that was now in ruins at this time, even at the time of Jeremiah. There's nothing left of it. So all the people understand exactly what Jeremiah is talking about, what he's supposed to talk about when he's talking about this place called Shiloh. If they don't straighten up, God's going to make everything around them turn into ruins. So back to uh, Jeremiah, uh, verse 16. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire, and the women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, and on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. So I think we can take from this that God's not too happy with Judah. In fact, the first ten chapters of Jeremiah are all talking about this prophecy and what God's going to do to the people if they don't quit sinning, if they don't turn back to him. How he's going to destroy them if they don't start doing life right. So can you imagine being Jeremiah at this point? Just think how bad that must have felt. you got the God of the universe completely disappointed in you and all the people around you, and you get to hear all this from him, straight from his mouth. You ever had somebody you really respect, somebody who you really look up to and they're disappointed in you and you've got to get the earful? Well, think how Jeremiah must have felt through all of this when it's actually God, the God of the universe, the God that he loves, is disappointed in him and his people. So now we're going to see what he prophesies about. All this is happening. Now he's going to tell them what's going to be the result. So in Jeremiah 25, if you'll turn there, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which Jeremiah the prophet spoke to all the people of Judah and to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, From the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, this is the twenty-third year 
in which the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you all his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened, nor inclined your ear to hear. So since God talked to Jeremiah, he's been preaching and prophesying at the temple, telling people to turn back to God for 23 years, and they still haven't listened. He's telling them to stop their wicked ways, and they refuse to listen. It's 23 years of this. And verse 5 goes on. They said, Repent now, everyone, of this evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land that the Lord has given to you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not heard my words, behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, and against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment, a hissing, and a perpetual desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then it will come to pass, when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I'll bring on the land all my words which I have pronounced against it. All that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. And I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. So here we are in 605 B.C. where Nebuchadnezzar, interestingly enough, it says, My servant Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king from a pagan kingdom, is a servant of the Lord. The Lord is going to use Nebuchadnezzar to make all of this happen. So 605, the Lord's servant Nebuchadnezzar is, uh, from Babylon has, has taken over Judah and has taken many of uh, the tributes. So they attacked, and uh, this actually happened three times. Nebuchadnezzar comes against Judah or against Israel in 605, where we're at right now. And then he does so again eight years later in 597, and again 11 years later in 586 B.C. So during this time, Nebuchadnezzar is coming in and surrounds the city, and he's taking tributes, taking people back. To Babylon. So again, God's using Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king from a pagan kingdom, to carry out his will with Judah. Nebuchadnezzar, to get an idea of who this guy was, he was a Chaldean king of the Neo-Babylonian Empire who reigned from 605 to 562 B.C. 43 years, pretty good uh, run in that particular time period when people were being deposed quite regularly. He's, he was a really successful king, though. He not only helped defeat the Assyrians, who had the uh, Israelites in captivity before the Babylonians, he took Babylon and turned Babylon into one of the greatest cities in the world at the time. Babylon itself rests on the Euphrates River, where it became one of the centers of commerce and engineering and scientific advancement in the world at the entire time. So Nebuchadnezzar was bringing people from all over these captured lands as he continued to conquer them and keeping the best and the brightest to serve his empire. He is uh, credited with creating the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. According to legend, Nebuchadnezzar built the Hanging Gardens for his Midian wife, Queen Amethyst, because she missed the green hills and valleys of her homeland. So there you guys go for your next uh, anniversary. You've got to live up to that. He also built a grand palace that became known as the Marvel of Mankind. He also made Babylon almost impregnable from attack. 
The walls were over 50 feet tall and really thick. The Euphrates River ran through the city, so they had a water source should they be besieged. They were very safe from any kind of attack. But we'll see later in Daniel that there was a way to attack the city, and the city would actually fall. The city itself had over 200,000 people in it at the time. This was the first city in the history of the world to reach 200,000 people. So we have a great pagan king who's doing amazing things in Babylon, lays siege to Jerusalem, and we saw that the people of Judah were given very clear expectations for their behavior from God, and now they violated those expectations. So they're going to suffer the consequences for the next 70 years. All of this has been prophesied by Jeremiah. So let's go back to the book of Daniel. Daniel 1, verse 3. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those, the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So here we have Daniel and his friends in captivity. They're specially selected to serve the king. They're going to go through this three years of training because they're the cream of the crop of the thousands of Israelites that have been taken as tributes or as captives. They're good-looking and gifted with wisdom and the ability to learn quickly. They're to serve in the king's palace and be taught the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Uh, They're even renamed. So Daniel, whose name means God is my judge, he's renamed Belteshazzar, which is servant of all. Hananiah means the Lord is gracious, is renamed Shadrach, inspired by the sun god. Mishael which means who is what God is, is renamed Meshach, who is what the moon god is. And finally, Azariah, the Lord helps, is renamed Abednego, servant of Nebo. So how would these young men react to all this? Would they submit to the temptations placed on them? Would they give in, excusing themselves through youth and inexperience? How would you have reacted in their place, being put in a situation like that? Well, let's see what they did. Let's look at verse 8, Daniel 1, verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore, he requested of the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel makes a decision. He makes a choice. When things get tough from temptation, he did not give up. He did not give in. He stayed committed through faith. He kept going. He purposed his heart. He chose. He didn't give in. He made a commitment and he stuck to it. Something that's rarely heard of today in both young and old. His commitment was not to defile himself with the king's food, possibly because king's food was something against the the Leviticus, what you can and can't eat. Maybe it was used as part of a sacrifice to one of the pagan gods, so he wouldn't want to eat it after that. But he chose not to do that for whatever the reason was. If it was used in idol worship, he didn't want anything to do it. He didn't want to participate in that. So I suppose you've heard it said that, and it's been said enough times, that every man has his price. And your price is whatever point You sell out your so-called convictions, your moral standards for some personal gain, for some personal fulfillment, or for some personal desire. They say every man has his price, and I suppose it's true of the world, though it ought not be true for believers. There should be no price which will make us compromise what we know to be true and what we believe to be the divine standard. Typically, people are honest 
right up until just a little dishonesty might save them a lot of money or gain them some great advantage. People know something to be definitely wrong, but for the sake of peace, they cover it up. People will do and act against their claim to convictions when asked by someone they admire or fear or from whom they seek a favor. People won't say what should truly be said because they feel they might lose face, and so goes the compromise. This happens to all of us, and it happens every day. There's some very famous experimentation, you've probably heard of this, took place in 1963, called the Stanley Milgram Experiment. The psychologist Stanley, Stanley Milgram created an electric shock generator with 30 switches. The switches were all clearly marked in 15-volt increments, from 15 to 450 volts. He also placed labels on those switches, indicating the, sh the shock level, such as 75 to 120 volts was labeled moderate, 135 to 180 was labeled strong. The switches from 375 to 420 volts were marked danger, severe shock. And the two highest levels, 435 and 450, were marked XXX. The shock generator was, in fact, a phony. didn't actually shock anybody, but it would produce sound when the switches were pressed. So 40 test subjects, all males, this doesn't speak well for us, were recruited via mail, a newspaper ad. They thought they were going to participate in an experiment about memory and learning. In the test, each subject was informed very clearly that their payment was for showing up, and that's all they had to do is show up. What happened after that didn't matter. No matter what happened, they were going to get paid. Next, the subject met the experimenter, the person leading the experiment. He's in charge of it. And another person told to be another subject. The other subject was, in fact, a confederate acting as the subject. He was a likable 47-year-old male accountant. So they, they, they met this 47-year-old accountant. And the two subjects, the real one and the pretend subject, drew slips of paper to indicate who was going to be the teacher and who was going to be the learner. Of course, it was all a setup, and the real subject would always get the role of the teacher. So the teacher watches as the learner gets strapped into a chair and electrodes are placed all over their body, and the subject was then seated in another room in front of the shock generator. They're unable to see the learner at this point. So this Stanley Milgram experiment is aimed at getting an answer for the question, how long will someone continue to give shocks to another person if they're told to do so, even if they thought they might seriously be hurt? This is the dependent variable if you're interested in psychology. Remember that the test subject or the teacher had met the other person, a likable stranger, and that they thought it, it could very well be them in the other chair as well who were receiving the shocks. So the experiment went like this. The subject was instructed to teach word pairs to the learner. When the learner made a mistake, the subject was instructed to punish the learner by giving him a shock, 15 volts higher for each mistake. If the experimenter seated in the other room was consulted, the experimenter would answer with, predefined prods such as, please continue. So if they had a question, you know, the guy flipping the switches, should I keep going? Please continue. And then if they asked again, the experiment requires you that you go on. And then the third time he would say, it is absolutely essential that you continue, or you have no other choice, you must go on. So these are the prods they get if they start to question the fact they're electrocuting the guy in the other room. So they start with the mild, mild prods, and as they continue to make mistakes, the amount of voltage continues to go up. If the subject asks who was responsible if anything were to happen to the learner in the shock chair, the experimenter always answered, I am responsible. This gives the subject a relief, and many just continue to go on. So the results were, although most subjects were uncomfortable doing it, all 40 subjects obeyed to 300 volt, all of them. 25 of the 40 subjects continued to complete to give shocks until the maximum level of 450 volts was reached. Before all this experimentation from Stanley Milgram, experts thought about 1 to 3% of the subjects would not stop giving shocks. 
they thought that you'd have to be pathological or a psychopath and go that far. Still, 65% never stopped giving the shocks. None stopped when the learner said he had heart trouble. Not a one of them. Part of the experiment was at one point he would have to say, I'm having heart problems. None of them stopped for that. How could that be? We now believe it has to do with almost our almost innate behavior that we should do as we're told, especially if it comes from someone in a position of authority. Right now you're probably saying, yeah, but that wouldn't be me, right? That could never be me. Well, statistically, it would be you. Statistically, you would take it all the way. How do we know? Well, the Bible is so cyclical, we can see it over and over and over again. Adam compromised God's law, followed his wife's sin, and lost paradise. Abraham compromised the truth, lied about Sarah, and nearly lost his wife. Sarah compromised God's word, sent Abraham to Hagar, who bore Ishmael, and lost peace in the Middle East ever since. Esau compromised for a meal with Jacob and lost his birthright. Saul compromised the divine word kept the animals and lost the royal seed. Aaron compromises convictions about idolatry, and he and the people lost the privilege of the promised land. Samson compromised righteous devotion as an Ezraite with Delilah, lost his strength, lost his eyes, and lost his life. Israel compromised the commands of the Lord, lived in sin, and went fighting with the Philistines, lost God. David compromised the divine moral standard and adulterated Bathsheba, murdered Uriah, and lost his child. Solomon compromises convictions, married foreign wives, and lost the whole kingdom. Ahab compromised, married Jezebel, and lost his throne. And here we are with Israel compromising the law of God, entering into sin and idolatry, and lost their homeland. Do you see a pattern here? I mean, it just goes over and over and over. It's true in our own lives as well. We do this all the time. We constantly compromise our values. We compromise where we shouldn't compromise. So what makes Daniel so remarkable is that Daniel was in Babylon, and Babylon is a pagan society in every sense. There was no regard for the true God as evidenced by the fact that they attacked the land of Israel, desecrated the true God's temple, and had taken all the people captive who weren't killed. And while Daniel was living in the middle of all this turmoil, his soul was anchored to the rock. And so he was unshakable and indestructible. He was absolutely unwilling to compromise the absolutes that he believed were the law of God. And that is what anchored him to the rock of confidence, even in the trials of captivities and Chaldean efforts to brainwash him. When they took these Jews captive, they were determined that they were going to have to be able to control the Jewish population. It's really difficult to take an entire nation into captivity and still be able to control all these expatriates at one time. And they knew that in order to do so, they needed to get some of the Jewish leaders to help them do it. So take some of their own Jewish people train them to be leaders that follow the Chaldean way and put them back in charge of the Jewish people. Keep them under the thumb. Control them. It was very important to the Chaldeans to manage them with some of the noble young Jews who could rise to leadership. They wanted to select the most physically beautiful young men who could sway people by sheer force of their looks and persona. They wanted to take young men who had unusual intellectual ability and social grace. They wanted to put them through the system of the Chaldean culture, educate them, train them, develop them in the Chaldean mindset, and yet, with their Jewish lineage, use them to rule over the people that they now had in their hands. So maybe another reason Daniel didn't want to engage in what was the lifestyle of the king is we saw him turn down the king's food and the king's drink was that it would be the grandest and most lavish in all the land, if not all the world at the ancient time, since that most of the supreme kingdom of the world is they would have taken him to a level of materialism and self-indulgence way beyond what would have honored God. So the Chaldeans attempted to melt down these four young men and reform them into Chaldeans and use them to lead the Jews and keep the peace among the Jews and try to control these expatriated people who are now in their country. So over a three-year period, Daniel, who's probably only 15 years old, by the way, and a eunuch and his friends learn 
all of what is asked of them. And they actually understand the language and culture and traditions of the Chaldeans probably ten times better than the Chaldeans themselves do. But they don't become them. They don't become Chaldean. They don't give in to it. I mean, frankly, there wasn't anybody there to watch them. Anybody, at least from his past, right? He's up there in the palace. He could have lived any kind of life he wanted. Certainly there would have been no social recourse at all. So if you want to understand the character Daniel, you have to see him in a totally foreign environment, under tremendous pressure, and as a very young man of 15, taking an uncompromising, firm stand on the absolute word of God. And all of the inducements and all the education, all the encouragement, all of the bribes, all of the pressures, all of the ambitions and glories of the king's court could not make him compromise what he knew to be true and right. Even as they would learn the king's language, and they would study the Chaldean education, they would filter it all through the Word of God. And thereby, they would learn the errors of that people. And learning their errors, they'd be better able to communicate the truth of God to them. Never, however, did they adopt their lifestyle. So we can see in Daniel and his friends a level of commitment and faith that's hard to come by. Looking back at Revelations, we can see the fiery trials that we talked about there that these four young men were encountering. They're away from home, probably for the first time. And they're being assimilated into a culture for the first time. Think of the temptations there. Think of the internal struggles as well as the fear of death they were facing. I mean, for goodness sakes, we can't even go off to college for the first time and be put into a, a different culture without succumbing to the temptations that we face. Think what your children are going to go through when, they send, when you send them off to college or your grandchildren. They're going to face the same things. But Daniel faced it on a greater magnitude and yet held true to what he knew to be right. There's a new culture and freedom for us to decide if we want to be a part of it or not, even in college or even in your workplace. Daniel and his friends filtered all what they read and what they learned through the Word of God. What did you do when you first went to college? Did you stay committed? Did you filter everything that you heard and learned through the Word of God? Would you have done so at 15 years old? That's pretty remarkable. Or are you more likely to be that person that delivers electric shocks to others because you're told to do so by someone in a position of authority. A little self-examination or self-reflection here, but we're going to be faced with this every day. Maybe it's a small compromise, and that's where it starts. The values, and especially when it goes against what God says, right? God's commandments, the first one is all about, hey, I'm, I'm the guy in charge, love me. The rest of them are all about love others. And when we're told to do so by someone in a position of authority that counters what God says, we should filter that through what Scripture says. Should I do this? Or is this going against what God actually says? If it goes against God's word, then that person probably shouldn't be in authority. We have the obligation then to remove that person from authority. And in this country, we do it through, obviously, the democratic system. But, so here, here we have the exact example of this. And as we get through Daniel, we'll see it even more, right? I mean, Daniel didn't bow. Yeah, he's, he's going to be threatened with his life, his mortal life, because he's not going to do what the Chaldeans are telling him to do. He still submitted to their authority up to the point where it crossed God's authority. Now we see this in Christ's own example. And that's what we should look at when we come into conflict with what we see between two different things here. We get confused. What did Christ do? What would God do? What does Scripture say we should do? Yeah. And that's, I think, what we see here in Daniel as well. So, all right, here we are. Stage is set. Just as Jeremiah prophesies, we have Daniel and uh, all of his buddies there in Babylon. They're in captivity for the next 70 years. Daniel knows it. He believes it. Seventy years. Jeremiah said it. He knows that they're there. He's a 15-year-old eunuch at this point, at the beginning of the book. And he's being tempted from all sides. He's walking a fine line between life and death every single day as he prepares for his role as an advisor to the king. He's clinging fast to his faith, and he's staying committed. He's demonstrating to us how to be overcomers. Even though being persecuted, 
he is demonstrating how to overcome that through his example, how to stay committed through faith. So next week, Tim will be back. We're going to continue this. He's going to get into this a little bit deeper. Please come back next Sunday as the story continues. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the great example of Daniel showing us how to remain committed to you and your word through unfaltering faith and perseverance. Help us to be overcomers the way Daniel was, that no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in this week, we filter our thoughts and words through your word, that we may be more like your son, Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.